from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. America represents a land of opportunity. And one of the arguments made in this book is that actually there's less opportunity in the United States than there are in a number of other countries. People think, oh, you know, it's not going to happen to me. It turns out that 60% of Americans will spend at least one year below the poverty line, and three quarters of Americans will encounter either poverty or very near poverty. We need to think about poverty as a structural failing rather than as an individual failing. We can pay now or we can pay later. I'm Sarah Fenske. Conjure up an image of poverty in the U.S., writes Mark Rank, and you probably envision someone who lives in the inner city, who is black or Latino, who collects welfare and maybe doesn't even want to work. That is often poverty's portrayal in the American imagination. But the data suggests a much different story, and that is the focus of Mark Rank's new book. It's called Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. It explains what we know about being poor in America and what that says about us as a nation. Here to discuss it today is Mark Rank. He's the Herbert S. Hadley Professor of Social Welfare in the George Warren Brown School of Social Work at Washington University. Mark Rank, welcome. Oh, thanks a lot, Sarah. It's great to be with you. So, Mark, you write in your book that the popular image of an American in poverty, that one I just described, is incorrect. So give us some fast facts to start us off here. What do we know about the typical American living in poverty? Well, I think you hit it right on the head. You know, uh, poverty actually affects the typical American. So um, one of the things that we look at right from the get-go in the beginning of the book is uh, what percentage of Americans at some point in their lives will experience poverty? Mm. Most people think, oh, you know, it's not going to happen to me. It turns out that 60% of Americans will spend at least one year below the poverty line, and three-quarters of Americans will encounter either poverty or very near poverty. So the idea that poverty just affects a small subset of Americans is clearly incorrect. Actually, uh, the majority of the, the vast majority of Americans will experience poverty at some point in their lives. So doesn't that speak to the idea of a certain mobility that plays right into the, the idea that we have about America, that this is a country where people can lift themselves out of this? What, what do you say to that? Well, you know, it is it is quite true that most folks who experience poverty do so for a year or two. They uh, get back on their feet and then something down the road may happen to them. So poverty is actually very fluid. Um, the idea that people are, are in poverty for 10 or 15 years in a row is, is by far the min minority of cases. Um, but for many of those folks that do get out of poverty, they're not that far above the poverty line. So mm. they may be, you know, earning $25,000, $30,000. They're a little bit over the poverty line. Uh, and then something happens to them to throw them below um, the, poverty, uh, the poverty line. So there's, there's quite a bit of movement in and out of poverty. But, um, but again, you know, this is, this is touching a vast majority of Americans. There's a huge number of Americans. 
Americans that are just at risk of experiencing uh, poverty. You know, one one statistic that comes out every year uh, by the Federal Reserve shows that about 40% of all Americans would not have $400 to cover an emergency. Hmm. So that means that there's lots of us who are living paycheck to paycheck and are at risk of, of impoverishment. I want to talk a little bit about geography, too, because I feel like, mm-hmm. especially in St. Louis, we might mm-hmm. have this idea that this is all people who live in a certain part of St. Louis City as opposed to being mm-hmm. spread across the, the metro area. What do we know about who's living in poverty today, where they live? Yeah, and this sort of gets at that question of the the reach of poverty is really wide. So the image that you started off with was, you know, that poverty is confined to um, inner city areas that are, are high, high in poverty. It turns out that only about 10 to 15 percent of folks who are in poverty are living in high poverty neighborhoods. So today, there actually are more people in poverty in suburban areas than there are in central cities. And some of the most deeply seated poverty is in rural America, like Appalachia or the Deep South and the Mississippi Delta. So again, the image that we have of poverty is a very narrow image, but the reality is that poverty touches a wide swath of the population. And let's talk about race, too. I I set up this idea Mm -hmm. that, yeah, we're all thinking that this is not white people. Your book says... Yes, this is white people. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, there's two ways of thinking about this. First of all, for folks of color, they are at at a much higher risk of experiencing poverty. However, it turns out that most people in poverty are white. So about two-thirds of the poor population um, are white. Uh, So, you know, again, this image that poverty affects only a small subset of the population, of folks of color and so on, is really incorrect. That this is, a, this is an experience that, unfortunately, many, many Americans will encounter. Hmm. And you argue, I mean, this book, after you sort of get into some of these fast facts, you really make a compelling case that, honestly, our entire society is, is somewhat rotten. You say the, the U.S. is no longer a land of upward mobility. You talk about this, this measure that I hadn't heard much about before. This is called intergenerational elasticity. Break this down for us. Yeah. What do you mean by that term? So, so there's been a lot of research to look at. What's the influence that, for example, father's income has on the son's income when he becomes an adult? And that's kind of getting at this intergenerational elasticity uh, index. And so it's, it's an indicator of how, how much mobility there is in a society. And it turns out that when we compare the United States to other high economy countries, we actually have much less income mobility than many of these other countries. So the idea that, you know, in the United States you can rise from rags to riches, sure, there are a few people that do that, but actually that's less common than it is in many other European countries or in Canada. So again, the idea that, you know, we, we, we put a lot of emphasis on this importance that, that 
America represents a land of opportunity. And one of the arguments made in this book is that actually there's less opportunity in the United States than there are in a number of other countries. Yeah, I think we think about, a lot of us think about America as this is kind of this high-risk country. We all understand that there's this downside, that we don't have as much of a safety net, but that you can fly so high here if you just put yourself to it and, and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. These statistics that you show and the way you compare us to other countries in this, we're flat out wrong about that. Canada yeah, seems to have yeah, more mobility. Yeah, that's right. So here's another way of thinking about this. If we think about um, income inequality, you know, you think about this as, you know, going from the top to the bottom and think about it as rungs on a ladder. And the closer those rungs are together, uh, the less inequality there is, and the more likely it is people can climb those rungs. When they get further apart, it becomes harder and harder for people to climb the rungs of opportunity. And what we have in the United States is our ladder is much further apart than almost all of these other high economy countries. And so the result of that is it becomes much harder to climb that ladder of opportunity. And I should say that over the last 45 years, as I'm sure you're aware, income inequality in the United States has only gotten wider. You know, the difference between people talk about the 1% and the 99%, but if we think about the top 10% and the bottom 10%, it's much further apart than, than in most other countries. And I want to talk a little bit about the reasons why, because that is something you, you talk about in your book. But before we get to that, there's something else here, a, a myth that you explode in this book. You say that the war on poverty was largely successful. That's certainly not the way it's gone down in the American imagination. Uh, what would you point to to make that case? Yeah, so, you know, Ronald Reagan was famous for saying, we fought a war on poverty and poverty won. Well, if we look at the statistics and we look at the numbers um, and we look at what happened from 1959 to 1973, the war on poverty began in 1964. Poverty, the poverty rates in 1959 were around 22%. By 1973, the poverty rates were around 11%. So poverty had been cut in half, and the reason for that is twofold. One, the economy was very robust and had a, had a good effect, uh, but the other is the war on poverty program. So to say that we fought a war on poverty and poverty won is incorrect. We cut poverty in half. Did we eliminate poverty? No, but we made a pretty significant dent in terms of poverty. And what that shows is that actually government programs done right can have a really effective, uh, can be very effective in terms of addressing poverty. And that's when I talk about the United States compared to other countries, the, really the main reason why the United States has so much, so, such a high level of poverty compared to these countries is because we do so little to address poverty compared to these other countries that have a strong, robust social safety net. You make a good case that Social Security is keeping a whole yeah. lot of people out of poverty. Yeah, and that's a that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. So um, the poverty rates in 1959 for the elderly were around 35%. So about one out of three of the elderly were in poverty. Today, it's around 9%. 
And the only reason for that really has to do with Social Security. Social Security has been expanded and indexed to inflation, and the result is that it's kept a number of the elderly out of poverty. So the estimate is if there were no Social Security today, the poverty rate for the elderly would go from 9% to around 40%. That shows you that government programs done right can have a really significant effect on reducing poverty. Well, so then let's talk about one of the other perceptions that is out there, and again, that you Mm -hmm. take on in this book, Mm -hmm. and that is that these programs are enormously expensive, that Social Security cannot continue to pay for itself because this is something that is this huge burden around the neck of the taxpayers. How does that sort out with what you found in the data? Well, you know, so here's another way of thinking about that. The way I like to say this is, you know, Uh, We can pay now or we can pay later. And uh, I did a study a couple years ago with a graduate student here at Washington University. And we looked at, uh, tried to estimate what's the cost of childhood poverty in the United States. So children are the age group that has the highest risk of poverty. We know that childhood poverty is associated with higher health care costs, less economic productivity when they become adults, and higher criminal justice costs. So we factored all those things in and tried to be very conservative. And we came up with an overall estimate the childhood poverty in the United States costs us slightly over one trillion dollars a year. To put that in perspective, in 2015, the overall this was this represented about 28 percent of the overall federal budget. So the question is not are we paying or are we not paying? The question is how are we paying? And what we're doing is we're paying for poverty on the back end of the problem rather than on the front end of the problem. And it's always more expensive to pay for something on the back end of the problem. The other thing that we came up with in this study was that for every dollar we spend on reducing childhood poverty, we would save between seven and twelve dollars down the road. So the argument is that not only is addressing childhood poverty and poverty in general the right thing to do, but it's also economically the smart thing to do as well. We're talking to Mark Rank. He's a professor at the Brown School at Washington University. He's the co-author of a new book called Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. That was written with Lawrence M. Eppard and Heather E. Bullock. Um, And Mark, I want to get back to um, some specific questions about going forward, what we we need to be doing differently. But we did have a question that came up on Twitter. I want to give you a chance to address this. This comes from Annalita. She writes, why in the year 2021 are you or anyone using measures based on father's income, since we talked about that one study. She writes, I don't understand this. Can you tell us why father's income would be what you'd look at here? Well, in that particular, in looking at that statistic, um, it's because it goes, you you have to go back 40 or 50 years, and most um, fathers were in the labor force, whereas moms uh, uh, may not have been. But, But in terms of thinking about poverty, it's always in the United States, it's based on household income. So it's the entire income of the household and then based on that income uh, did that household fall below a certain income level or are they above a certain income level that's how we measure poverty okay so that does have to do with just how how far back you're trying to make these comparisons 
Right, right. For that particular statistic, yeah. Okay. Well, so going back to, to the main topic of what we're talking about here, you've talked about the war on poverty was a success, that we were moving in the right direction on this, and yet this intergenerational elasticity, this is actually going down. What changed for America? Well, I think, I mean, that's a really good question. I, I, I think really what we see is that from the early 1970s on, as I mentioned earlier, income inequality has gotten um, much wider over this period of time. And I would say that really since 1980, with the election of Ronald Reagan, we, we really took a turn towards a more conservative ideology. And with that, the idea of reducing the social safety net, of um, having more uh, of a laissez-faire sort of capitalist structure, um, you know, letting business kind of run its course. And all of those things, I think, really had a pretty significant effect on um, raising inequality and also increasing um, poverty during this period of time. So I, I think there's a lot of different factors out there. But, but one important factor, I think, has been this sort of turn over the last 40 or 50 years towards a more conservative ideology. You're also very critical of President Bill Clinton's efforts to, quote, end welfare as we know it and, and the changes that went through there, there were some really dire predictions that there'd be children sleeping on grates. And I think Clinton and his supporters, they would say that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, you come down on a different side on this. You say this has not been a good good change there. Well, if the, you know, if the um, measure of success is reducing the number of folks on welfare or on a safety net, then that was successful. Mm. However, to me, the measure of success is did we reduce poverty? And the answer is no. Um, and you know, one of the things that we talk about in the book is that so often we view poverty as an individual failing. There's something wrong with the individual. They're not working hard enough. They don't have enough skills, so on and so forth. And the argument that we make is that really poverty is a structural failing. It's a failing of the economy and it's a failing of our social policies. And so when you compare the United States with other countries, this is why we have such high rates of poverty. It doesn't have to do with our workers not working hard enough. In fact, American workers put in more hours than workers in, any, in, in largely any other industrialized country. It has to do with our economy producing so many low-wage jobs without benefits and our social policies doing so little to protect people from falling into poverty. We need to think about poverty as a structural failing rather than as an individual failing. You had a really interesting image that got me thinking, and this was about mm -hmm. um, economic success being compared to musical chairs. Yes. Walk us through that. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a very powerful an analogy, and it allows people to kind of understand what we're talking about here. So imagine a game of musical chairs. We have um, eight chairs and 10 players. They circle around, music stops, and two people lose out. Now, who loses out? Well, if we focus on the characteristics of the losers, then we can say, well, they weren't as fast. Uh, they were in a bad position when the music stopped. And those are reasons why those two people lose out. But if we step back and we say, well, now, wait a minute, 
the game is set up so that two players are going to lose out, then those individual characteristics only explain who loses out at the game, not why the game produces losers in the first place. And the argument that we make in the book is that we're playing a large-scale version of musical chairs. And given that there aren't enough decent paying jobs, given that we don't have social policies to protect people, we're going to have some folks lose out. Those folks are going to have have characteristics that put them at a greater disadvantage of losing out, like less education, single parent families, and so on. But that only explains who in particular loses out, not why the game produces losers in the first place. And that's the shift in thinking that we need, and that's what we emphasize in this book. Boy, you really make a good case here, and I feel like this is a book that a lot of people should read, but maybe the people who should read it are the people <laughs> least likely to read it. In our final few moments here, do you think you've had any success in getting this to a choir that, that isn't already singing that same tune? I think so. And I'll mention one other thing real quick that I've done that, that actually gets this kind of idea out there. I've created a website that has all of this information that folks can go to, and it also has a, what we developed as a poverty risk calculator that estimates what an individual, what your risk of poverty will be in the next 5, 10, or 15 years. And that's based on all this longitudinal data that I've done. So it's open to everybody. All you do is just uh, type in confronting poverty. You'll, it'll pop right up. And, and that's a way of trying to reach out to, the, to a broader audience and saying, hey, this is an issue that we really need to focus on. Well, Mark Rank, professor at the Brown School of Social Work at Washington University, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it was terrific, Sarah. Thank you. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.